You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 60. Today, I talk with Dr. Steven Siegel about what it's like to look for a job in times of COVID and when you find yourself in a big healthcare system that doesn't understand what you do and won't let you do the things that you're skilled to do. This is an important episode, especially someone who's unhappy in their job. You may just be at the wrong job. So hope you enjoy this episode. It's very important. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com and please share this episode with friends and rate and review the show. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. I have a great guest today. This is Steve Siegel. He is a, a general surgeon specializing in minimally invasive and bariatric surgery. And we crossed paths on the Boss Facebook group and his story sounded really compelling. And I know a lot of you are going through what he already went through. And so I wanted him to share his story so we can really get to the bottom of how we can make this job sustainable, how we can make our career sustainable, and you know what to do when you find yourself in a difficult job situation. So Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, happy to share my story. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, Set the stage for who you are. So um, I grew up in uh, Florida. I did my uh, um, undergrad in Miami, my medical school at the University of Florida. And then I went out to Oregon to do my general surgery uh, residency. And then I did my fellowship at Penn State, where I focused on minimally invasive surgery, um, surgical endoscopy, and bariatric surgery. And I finished my fellowship in 2020, right when COVID came to the United States. So that was an interesting transition. I could only imagine, and I'm sure that, you know, COVID played a big role in some of the uh, experiences that you had in the job. So take us through a little bit of, you know, how you found this job and then the, you know, how the job started. So, yeah, certainly for people who come out of training looking for a job, generally you want to start looking for your job that whole last year. But I think around the springtime is the majority of the time when people really start getting out, interviewing. Um, trying to solidify their contract coming out of training. And obviously, spring of 2020 is when uh, COVID started to show its ugly face here in the United States. So uh, I would say in the fall, winter of my fellowship year, I had a sense of the job market, my applications were out. And then when COVID really ramped up, I think a lot of the uh, employers, uh, they, you know, they were not only not offering jobs, they were furloughing a lot of their employees. So that took away a lot of my options. And then in terms of, you know, social and family reasons, we wanted to uh, be close to our family. So we kind of said, not only are there not a lot of job options, but we wanted to be in a particular state. So that made it incredibly challenging. Um, so by the time of my, the end of my fellowship year, I had kind of narrowed it down to about two options, two or three options. Um, but we, by the last day of my fellowship, I did not have a contract and we had a six month old baby. So uh, not having a contract, not having a job, um, running at the end of our lease was was pretty challenging. But eventually, I uh, was able to secure a job in a big uh, employed employer uh, healthcare network uh, organization. And location-wise, worked well because we got to be close to our family. And I love how you just sort of said, and I didn't have a contract at the end of the year. I can only yeah. imagine, you know, how stressful all of that was. And, you know, yeah. I think a lot of us don't realize how stressful all this is until it's passed. And so... Mm-hmm. 
you know, looking back, was there anything that you would have done differently? I mean, I, again, I think the biggest variable and curveball was COVID, to be honest with you. There's nothing I could have changed about that. I mean, I had fantastic mentors, uh, great letters of recommendation, you know, word of mouth. You know, I had a great network of people that kind of really helped me uh, get a job. But I think the big curveball that changed everybody's life, obviously, was COVID. Um, I think even being able to get a job in a setting where so many uh, healthcare organizations were, you know, furloughing people, essentially, I got lucky. Um, so I don't think I could have done anything differently. Take us through the beginning stages of the the job here, too. Like, you know, I know this was a little bit of a unique situation in, in the times of COVID, mm-hmm. but take us through like the, the beginning stages of your job and some of the trials that you had in starting the job. Sure. So again, it was a it's a large healthcare organization. Um, I worked at one of their smaller satellite campuses, or obviously main uh, campuses in the, the center of the city, and I was kind of on the periphery of the county. Um, but it was a 200 plus bed hospital. Um, so I come out of training. One of my first kind of bumps, if you will, in my um, in my startup was uh, coming out of a minimally invasive uh, fellowship where I was bariatric trained, bariatric privileged and credentialed, as well as surgical endoscopy. So. One of my uh, initial frustrations is coming into this uh, more satellite hospital that didn't have any of these services, kind of like primed, ready to go, excited to, you know, do all my specialty work, everything that I really was passionate about doing and only finding after I got started, pretty much no to a lot of those things. No, we don't want you doing bariatric surgery. No, we don't want you doing advanced endoscopy, ERCP. And it was hard for me for a handful of reasons. One, as uh, surgeons know, we're all very much type A people. So you want to be doing what we're doing, doing what we love. We want to get out there and be busy and, you know, do what we were trained to do. So that was a little bit of a shock, just A, not being able to do it. And then B, being in one of these smaller hospitals, there were no service lines in that hospital. There was no bariatric surgery. There was no ERCP coverage. So it's also frustrating saying, like, I can't do what I wanted to do and what I was trained to do. And I can't provide a service that's needed specifically at this hospital. So that was my first big challenge. And I think this is such an important point because, you know, we are making the assumption that people understand what we do and they really don't. And so when you're looking at the job is really asking the questions, this is what I'm going to do. And is this your understanding as well? Because, you know, if we kind of separate out from, you know, us versus them, this victim villain role, it's this idea that these big healthcare systems have these ideas of what a surgeon is. And their Mm -hmm. idea of what a surgeon is may be different than us. And some Mm -hmm. of the details of what we want to do may not fit into their their idea of what's going on. And and the very first thing is just really embracing the idea that maybe they don't know what we do. I mean, we think it's obvious. Looking back, how did you um, navigate this idea of them telling you, you know, you really can't do what you want to do? So one of the one of the things I did in the in the realm of bariatric surgery is I became uh, good colleagues and good friends with the, the main bariatric surgeon at the time. There's a different campus. It's about 15 minutes away, but it's the main hub where our bariatric program was. Uh, awesome guy. We became really close friends. And what I what I use as my skill set to keep me happy and busy and doing my advanced endoscopy, uh, but within the realm of bariatrics, is I started a bariatric endoscopy program. So even though I wasn't allowed to do the primary bariatric surgery, I had um, met this other surgeon and I told him, Hey, I have this humongous skill set in bariatric endoscopy. So endoscopic management of bariatric and surgical complications, leaks, fistulas, uh, endoscopic bypass revisions, all these things that weren't offered in the system and that he didn't do and that none of the GI docs did. So 
I kind of used that skill set, which was, I guess, quote unquote, allowed or allowable within the, the politics of the network um, to build a bariatric endoscopy program. So I kept my endoscopic skills up and I got to be part of the bariatric program. And then I was kind of showing my value um, in that, at least in that regard. That's a great way of being flexible in the system. You know, if if you didn't know what they wanted before and then you find yourself in this situation is, you know, really finding a way to uh, provide value to the system in a way that that it will allow. Now, I can only imagine, though, this is not exactly, you know, what you wanted. So how did you start to, um, you know, work through the process of maybe this is not the job for me? Like, when did it start occurring to you that maybe this is not the job for me? Yeah, I think kind of all of that stuff, eventually um, more things started popping up uh, along with the same theme. So I, again, the first thing that was kind of a nuisance or, or difficult for me to swallow was not being able to do bariatric surgery. Um, the advanced endoscopy piece started to kind of also become a little difficult in the sense that I was building this humongous bariatric endoscopy program, uh, but like within other realms, uh, other realms of advanced endoscopy, I wasn't able to do. So to go back to that ERCP thing is that ho- my main hospital had no ERCP or very rare ERCP coverage. And like most, you know, hospitals with any sort of general surgery population, you're going to have people who need ERCPs. Um, so I had um, kind of been quote unquote blocked, if you will, by the by the powers that be, who are at a different hospital, main main hospital downtown, saying, you know, we. We don't want you offering ERCP services at the hospital where it already wasn't there. Those patients, unfortunately, would have to transfer to the main hospital to get ERCP. So it ended up being a huge healthcare resource for utilization, in my opinion. But so that was blocked. Um, and then another thing within advanced endoscopy is I also passionate about foregut surgery, so gastroesophageal surgery. So we have this uh, procedure in foregut surgery called the POEM procedure. It's an endoscopic myotomy where we can treat things like achalasia, gastroparesis. Um, but again, it's an advanced endoscopy procedure. And, you know, when you start saying I'm a general surgeon who wants to do advanced endoscopy, you'll have to get, get a lot of gastroenterologists who are like, who is this guy and what, what does he think he's doing? So that was kind of the next big, um, you know, difficult thing for me to swallow being told I can't do that. So these things started kind of piling up. Um, and then there's just, of course, just the timeline of it, which is my initial contract was two years. So. And. This is such a critical point, um, as a lot of us are doing things that other specialists do. You know, we see this uh, with interventional radiologists and cardiologists and vascular surgeons. And mm-hmm. the same is true for endoscopy is that when you have a couple of specialists that can do this procedure is, you know, what is the understanding of the people who are already there? Because, you know, we are being hired by the hospital administrators, you know, we're being hired by a group of people but they don't always necessarily get the input in of these specialists. And you may not actually know that there's a conflict until you get the job, which is exactly mm-hmm. what you've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the, yeah, one of the harder parts was, um, you know, I, I tried my best to navigate the situation politically and, and, and have a voice. And what I did oftentimes is try to talk to the administration or CMO to, to try to say, Hey, this is what I do. This is the services that I've been trained to do. And we don't offer this hospital. And I would love to be able to extend you know, the quote that I often use is extend our service lines and, you know, uh, you know, offer more services to our patients without them having to transfer and just having the difficulty of the CMO, not even really seeing how that would benefit the hospital um, was a little frustrating for me as well. Absolutely. And as there's more of these people within the um, the lines of our hierarchy that don't understand is that we really have to employ a lot of um 
you know, skill sets to like of no negotiations and really understanding the market and the value and the the cost um, savings and things like that, just like you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, it makes perfect sense if you say, hey, small community hospital, I'm actually going to bring this service that is going to help other people. And running into these roadblocks that are just a little bit mind boggling, I can only imagine how frustrating that would be. Yeah, yeah. Especially being, like I said, young, straight out of training, type A, just wanting to hit the ground running. And I guess as these things popped up over the, the first two years of my practice is just it, the way I kind of see it in my mind is just the whittling away of the advanced training that I had. Exactly. And a lot of that is when we sit there um, and there's so many limiting thoughts on all of these things. You know, we're battling against the limiting thoughts of the gastroenterologist of this idea that there's not enough patients and missing the point of if we build this great thing, we'll actually get more, you know, really Mm -hmm. having the ability to show other people and get past their own scarcity of like, oh, my gosh, everything's going to fall apart if this person comes in. You know, we as a new person are always going to change the dynamics to some degree and being aware of how that may affect other people is important and getting, you know, on board with those people early on and reassuring them that, you know, we're all in this together. Right. Yeah. And my mindset, um, the front of my mindset, no matter what, it's not, I want to do this for me because I enjoy doing it. It's for me, it's just patient care, being able to do what's best for the patient and, you know, having um, somebody come in who needs their gallbladder out and an ERCP, for example, on a Friday, or they get their gallbladder out on a Friday and for whatever reason they need an ERCP afterward, whether it's common duct stone or what have you, just having to watch them sit in the hospital uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday to wait to Monday to transfer to another hospital to get an ERCP to transfer back, which it ultimately adds at least one more night before they're discharged. It's just, you know, I have a hard time seeing that sort of uh, healthcare utilization, you, you know, such poor utilization of healthcare resources. Exactly. And I think that you've done, you did all the right things you could, which is, you know, letting the administration know and, and doing all the things. Um, And I mean, really, in this situation, probably the only thing you could have done is do this ahead of time. But how could you possibly have predicted this when you're looking at your job in the times of COVID? Um, So certainly, but it's, it's definitely a call for us to be aware of the systems that we're entering into. Now, Mm -hmm. Um, take us through a little bit of this thought process of when you were thinking about like all of your skills eroding. I can only imagine, you know, what that felt like. So take us through how you dealt with that, uh, those ideas. Yeah. So after getting, you know, I think it's kind of like the stages of denial, <laughs> you know, you go through all the, those stages and then, but then essentially it, it comes to a call to action. Like, you know, it's time to do something about this. And again, the, the way my contract was set up was an initial two years. And then the option to extend if both parties agree, kind of a you know, typical employer contract. Well, for me, you know, I just said, like, let's see what else is out there. You know, what, what other opportunities are there? Um, and I got very lucky. Um, I went out to do a advanced endoscopy skills course. Um, and uh, that's where I met my current now current partner in my new in my new position. Um, he happened to be living in the same state. Um, he actually, interestingly, had all the similar training lineage that I did. He ended up doing a lot of his training uh, in the North Pacific Northwest where I got my advanced training as well. Um, and we met, we talked, we got each other's numbers. We just kind of, you know, shared our interests and what kind of, you know, things we like to do, what kind of programs we like to build. Uh, he's, he was a solo private practice guy at the time and he offered, you know, offered me a job to come on board and it all, it all worked out in the end. What were you thinking at that time? You know, had you initially thought of private practice or was this, you know, on your radar at all? Um, you know, I had never, uh, I had nothing against private practice. I knew 
what I knew is I'm a young doctor who has no, you know, when you're training, you learn nothing about private practice. You learn nothing about the business of medicine, essentially. So I always knew if I was going to go into private practice, I need to learn the business of medicine, which I was not against. I always knew I could never be a solo private practice guy because then it's all on me. But having um, a senior partner who'd been in the community and been in private practice for eight to 10 years or so, I knew I could, you know, lean on him to learn the business as I go. Um, so I was actually pretty excited about it because I've never wanted to be, you know, naive to how the business of medicine works. That's one thing about kind of being in an employed model. You can kind of sit back and let the employer handle all the business for you. But, you know, being part of type A and an intellectual type person, I, I wanted to understand it. So I kind of see it as an opportunity to learn how, how the business works. What a great example, too, because it's absolutely true. It shows what our mindset is when it comes to like, you know, we're leaving residency. We don't know all this stuff. So we're going to go to this system who's going to show me how to run my, my practice and do all the things. And then you start to realize that we abdicated the uh, ability to run our practices. And sometimes we end up in these situations where they just don't know how to use us and what a loss mm-hmm. to the whole system. And I mean, mm-hmm. when you only have two years to prove yourself in a system that won't let you prove yourself, I could mm-hmm. only imagine how frustrating that was. Yeah, it was a little challenging. It's It was kind of a- interesting just having to at times uh, teach the coders how to code kind of a thing and i'm like well you know maybe I, maybe private practice won't be so bad i can do you know take control of all of this so and so. that goes up to it limiting thoughts is that we actually know more than we think we know um mm-hmm. and i think the more that we can share all of these lessons of you actually know all of these things and what you need to do to get here is actually not that difficult and we've already done hard things um the i think mm-hmm. the biggest challenge sometimes is when we get out of residency it's like okay i'm ready and then it's and we've talked about this already uh before of new level different devil right right yeah i mean i guess the saying goes i mean if you can if you can get through medical school and you can get through residency i mean you can do anything it's just a different thing exactly now so when you decided to do that the private practice how was that transition going from this this big hospital system to a private practice what were some of the challenges you came across um, you know, I, I haven't had, certainly the challenges in round two were not as big as round one because thankfully, again, I'm privileged and uh, allowed to do all these things that I'm, that I'm trained to do. So that's the most exciting part of all of this. Um, really just learning how to properly bill and code for myself. Um, it's kind of the biggest difference, not having somebody do it for me and, and going through, um, collections and things like that. You know, I've learned a lot of information from various podcasts and, information travels so fast these days. So I'm learning a lot about, again, handling the business of medicine, but it it hasn't been stressful to me, mostly because I enjoy the knowledge and I enjoy learning how to do it. And part of being a type A person is getting control over it as well. So um, the challenges have not been the same and certainly not not too bad so far. I'm still learning, um, but we learn every day and that's kind of the job we have. I completely agree. And how wonderful that you have a a mentor that can help you through all this, you know, and it doesn't have to be someone who's like way many years of us. Sometimes it's just someone who's a couple steps ahead of us that can really share the the path that we've been on. And, you know, I've, I've shared my path um, of private practice. I think we were talking about this before we recorded about, you know, each challenge comes up with different things. And, you know, first was this idea of like, I mean, are the patients going to come and that you stress about that. So then you go mm-hmm. through marketing and you, you know, think about all the things and all the different ways to do that and do some things that pay off and some things that were just a waste of time. And right. but then, then they do come 
Um, and then right. you kind of wish, just like in school, you kind of wish you had some of that time back so you can kind of set up right. all the ground rules of stuff like what you've already done. Right. Um, and so that's that's a first level of getting people in the door. So what are the challenges that you're finding um, as far as your own mindset of getting people in the door? Yeah, I think it's um, that that was a big difference between being in a big healthcare organization now versus a, a private practice job is. Um, when I was big in the big healthcare um, organization, they had so much money behind their their marketing campaigns, um, and it was just a very well oiled machine. So it's almost my my second day on the job, they have one of their marketing people come into my office, pick me up, throw him in his car, and he's like, "All right, we're going, you know, peer to peer office office visits." And they have your checklist of all these doctors that you're going to see. You do that one day, you give it like a week or two to settle, then they pick you up. You know, it's almost every week we were just going office to office, and I had somebody in the marketing department doing it all. They were making my business cards for me, my rack cards for me, doing, um, you know, Facebook lives and all that. Again, a well-oiled machine and it was all automatic. So I didn't really have to think about it, which is kind of nice. Um, so the, the biggest difference between that and, and going into private practice is, you know, anytime you're a new surgeon in a new market, it's going to be slow because nobody knows who you are and that you're, that you even live in town. Uh, but now it's all on me to kind of do it, which I'm happy to do. So I'm kind of working my way through, all the things that used to be done automatically for me. So, you know, whether it's a website redesign, um, physician to physician office visits, um, you know, marketing online or social media, uh, doing that myself. And then being in private practice is being conscious of the cost because all the cost of these things comes out of the practice. You know, it's not something that's in a big, big bucket in an empl uh, a massive employer organization. So, you know, as I'm going through the different websites that I can put my physician profile, you get the phone call the next day, like, hey, we can boost your profile for whatever, $100 a month. And it's like, yeah, you know, every website wants me to give them $100 a month. So being cost conscious, knowing that it's coming out of, out of the private practice is very different. Yes. And, you know, there is nothing that challenges our thoughts on money like a private practice. <laughs> right, right. And I find this too, uh, there's a lot of challenges uh, that you don't necessarily realize you're going to have, which is when you're employed, they they basically even out all the, the variations. I mean, there's a natural variations in RVUs and collections, uh, you know, especially based on your payer mix. And I think you know one of the first things that I still have challenges with is looking at this variation, feeling like you worked really hard and recognizing that the, the money the charges that are coming in are usually based on something that you did like a month or two ago that you've already forgotten. And, you know, you can make that number mean a whole lot. And so, you know, if you look at the finer um, aspects of the up and down, it'll drive you bananas. But if you step back and have a global view, and, and actually, I think you probably have to have both. Um, but mm -hmm. the ability to manage your mind around large sums of money coming back and forth is probably the biggest challenge that I've had uh, in this most recent iteration. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess being new to this position, I'm, I'm still uh, a little bit uh, in the woods rather than, you know, in the, in the trees, I guess, if you will, it hasn't gotten too granular for me yet. So, but I'm sure, like you said, having two different types of views is important. So. Yes. And the most important thing is, you know, the ability, like, and this is beyond the scope of this because it's a big topic of, you know, really understanding what our thoughts are about money. There's so much scarcity of money, like there's not going to be enough. I'm not going to have enough. And as your practice builds, it's so great to look around. And if you stop and say, look at what I've built. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, look what I've built. Right. <laughs> I'm going to keep this going. <laughs> right, right. Yep. I'm sure I'll, I'll see that in time. You know, my, my partner has asked uh, me in the short time I've been here is, you know, do you want to, do you want a PA? 
you know, and having been through that experience in my previous job, same ideas, going after a PA is, you know, I, I'm not busy and I want to be busy, but I'm not busy enough where I feel like I can, cons- A, keep a PA entertained and busy all day long um, and, and B, maybe justifying the salary. So, you know, I actually responded to him by saying, how about an, an office MA? So we had somebody making the office move more efficiently, um, the charting more efficiently, check-ins more efficiently. To me, that kind of made a little more sense. So the fact that I, I have a say in that matter um, is, is feels good. You know, and that's the thing about private practice versus when you're employed. I had no concept of what our office needed. And when we said we needed the PA, it was a six-month, you know, six-month by committee decision. So very different, very different. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I mean, that is like the the biggest advantage of private practice. It's, it's both the biggest advantage and the biggest stressor is really right. asking yourself, what do I need? And then if you really are clear on what you need as far as like, um, where is the help that I need? And a lot of times we don't even necessarily know that. And so where's the help that I need and how can I get this in the most efficient and easy mm-hmm. and inexpensive way as possible? And it's every system is a little bit different and every time in your career is a little bit different. Uh, Cause like, I agree, like I needed at first, like the best MA in the world. And I found one and she really helped a lot and then everything grew. And then I was like, well, now I need a little bit, I need someone who could do the orders and someone who could see the patients. And then it, it came over time and it's recognizing that we can't look at someone's practice and say, I'm just going to mirror theirs. You know, the, the, it, if that were that easy for that cookie cutter, you know, that'd be I don't know, we'd all do it, but really what it is, it's an evolution of asking yourself every day, what do I need and how can I get this? Um, And those are the questions that will get you the furthest. Right. Yeah. And that's what helped me make, you know, come up with that thought is the MA versus, or before the PA, you know, I saw myself in clinic all by myself, um, you know, and I'm, I'm putting in all the, um, their meds, their allergies, their, um, you know, their, their medical diagnosis and all that. I'm been here like before when I had an MA, that was all automatic. So all I need to do is see the patient and you're pretty much doing the subjective and the objective and the plan and some orders. And that really kind of bog, bogged down my clinic efficiency. So that was my thought. Yeah, get the MA, get the clinic more efficient, see more patients, grow the practice. And then the PA will really have a, a lot more value at that point. Yes. And you're not wrong. If you bring someone in early that you don't know what to do with, it is more pressure. <laughs> Right, right. You know, because then you want to fill their time and you want to make it worthwhile. So there's this urgency to make it worthwhile. And that could be a real challenge. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't want to hire somebody just to stare at a wall. Yes. And and I can tell you the other challenge that you'll run into is how we get in our own way. Like the ability to delegate is one of, you know, the biggest challenges that we have is that, you know, there's actually different levels of delegation, interestingly enough. And Michael Hyatt in his, um, I think it's the executive assistant book, talked about different levels. And, you know, a lot of times we're giving a different level to someone who who can manage it, you know, that we want like here, take this and, and don't talk to me again, just make it make it perfect. But a lot of times we have to kind of go through the stages of, I tell you exactly what to do, don't bury. And then mm-hmm. the other stages, um, you know, why don't you go look at it up and then, you know, but bring it to me and then we'll, then I'll decide. And mm-hmm. then it's, you know, look at all the, the information and bring it back and then we'll decide. And then mm-hmm. the fourth is like, you, you just do whatever and then keep me in the loop. And then the, the right. fifth level is just like, don't even talk to me, just get it done, you know? <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. I agree. And that's what I found when I had my, my first PA in my last position, because she just came straight out of school. 
So, you know, she was still learning. She was still deer in the headlights. So I'm like, okay, well, essentially, you know, you're shadowing me for a little bit because I can't just let you go and make, you know, make decisions mostly because I want to see how you make your clinical judgment, you know, and you're still learning. So yeah, I definitely, I wouldn't call it a problem delegating as much as um, I know I do do it my way. I want you to learn how I do it my way, but you know, that's how it is when we're residents, right? You ask yourself as an intern, like, why can't I do anything? Why isn't anybody letting me do anything? It's because, you know, kind of have to learn first and and prove that you uh, have a good concept of what's going on. Yes. And I can share another trap that you may fall into, uh, not you in particular, just in general, is that, you know, when you have someone you can effectively delegate to, you still have to check in with them because mm-hmm. you know they will have a, um, a lot of the same doubts that we all have if they're doing a good job. And reminding right. someone often when they're doing a good job is really critical for working on that relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Positive feedback. And I don't want to get too far off the topic because I really do think this is important. Looking back um, let's say someone is in a similar position that that you were of the fact that you know you're in this job and you can't do what you your skills like you know what your skills and your interest where they lie. What would mm-hmm. you tell someone in that situation? Who's already in the situation? That's tough. I mean, mm-hmm. what I did is you know I, I I think when I got to a point where I was so frustrated that I was you know unhappy and stressed out is I did my best to in the nicest way go to uh, first, my hospital, my local hospital administration, like I was saying before, the CMO, and just kind of express, you know, my desire to do um, these things that I was trained and privileged to do that I felt was going to benefit the patient. And when I didn't feel like I was making much progress, there was more of the um, the, the the system-wide, the hospital healthcare organization, healthcare organization system-wide administration. They were kind of sitting in the in the main campus, and I kind of went up to them and just, you know, sat and kind of expressed all the similar things and tried to pretty much understand, not only explain that I wanted to provide a service that wasn't provided at my local hospital, but try to understand kind of where the pushback was coming from. Because the pushback of saying you can't do X, Y, and Z wasn't, um, I guess, technically um, contractually allowed in the sense that I had my privileges to do those things. It's more for political reasons. Um, and the way I saw it is kind of protecting egos of other other people. So I kind of wanted to get to the root of it, like, hey, can you help me understand where the pushback is coming from? Um, and, you know, sometimes their answers were concrete, sometimes their answers were vague, and it just kind of just reiterated the fact that it was just wasn't a good fit in terms of the position. So obviously, um, you know, looking looking for other jobs is really the short of it, is the short answer. Um, and I ended up at a job that wasn't a job that was posted. And that just, I think, goes to show the value in, in networking and meeting people, just whatever, whether it's cold calling or going to conferences, skills events, what have you, and just meeting people. So I remember being at this um, endoscopy skills course um, and, and talking with my current partner and being almost shy to even ask like, hey, what's your employment, you know, what's your uh, practice uh, situation? Are you looking for a partner? But I just went for it and it worked out for me. So uh, don't be shy and and you know look broadly look elsewhere don't be don't be afraid to leave a position that makes you unhappy is the short of it that's great and i know that that you know we met actually on a thread that was talking about limiting thoughts in medicine and what really stood out to me and this is why i reached out to you was your limiting thought was you know i'm not good enough and you know, we hear this, a lot of women surgeons talk about this, you know, pretty readily, a little bit more open about this. And, 
you know, I can definitely see how this situation can really feed into that limiting thought. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people may find themselves in that position of when you're in the wrong job is asking yourself, is it me? And I know Mm -hmm. that it's hard not to have that thought of, is this me? And was that a thought that you had? And, and how did you internally overcome that? I think a little bit, I think part of it, um, you know, when I had, when I was uh, kind of being uh, told, you know, can't do this, can't do this. And, you know, it took me some time to really understand that it was, you know, it just wasn't in the right position. There was a lot of political things going around to make these determinations. But before I got to that point, it's kind of like, do they just not like me? Is this a personality issue? Is it because they don't trust me because I'm young? You know, I was in a very, um, a very Spanish community. Is it because I'm, you know, not a natively Spanish speaking person? Is there some limitation there? Um, yeah, I certainly had those thoughts. Is it me? Am I doing something wrong? Am I going about this the wrong way? Am I talking to the wrong people? And I'm talking to this person and asking them, what can I do? Should I be talking to this person? Um, it kind of felt like a ping pong ball or, uh, or a pinball, I should say, at times. Um, but I think the progression, again, was kind of going through those stages of grief and ultimately coming to the realization, like, it's just not a good fit. I know I'm doing the best thing for my patients. I know my number one goal is patient care. I know I'm doing a good job. It's just I'm in the wrong place. I've seen this a lot, actually, of it it becomes an evolution of you go to this job and you're, you know, you're just starting out, you know, you're ready to to test yourself. You run up against the system and then you start warning yourself, is it me? And then you learn more about the system and then you get to the point where like, no, oh, no, no, it's not me. It's definitely them. Mm-hmm. And so then you rail on the system and blame the system. And then eventually you get to a neutral place of saying, it's not me. It's not them. Like it literally is just not a good fit. Like I don't right. have to be the victim or the villain. They don't have to be the victim or the villain. The The idea of, you know, I just found myself on. in the wrong place. And right. the quicker you could do that, the less, you know, trauma you'll cause to yourself and the, the, faster you can get to a place where you're going to be, but don't miss that lesson of the idea of, you know, learning of uh, what you really need and how to get it and that it's okay to do that. And that if you're in a bad position, it's going to feel terrible. You're going to feel bad about yourself. And the longer you stay in this position, you know, you're going, it's a rapid course to burnout and to insecurity and to, you know, selling yourself short as if you follow along this path and and you were able to save yourself. And that's why I thought that your, your story in particular was going to help a lot of people. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I guess another way of putting it is kind of like the dating game, you know, it doesn't not, not, neither what, neither party has to be wrong. It could just be a bad fit. So, um, but yeah, you know, I would say to anybody who's in a similar situation is you you don't have to stay, you know, there's there's nothing that handcuffs you to your job, obviously contracts are contracts, but you know, I think, it can be a mutually uh, determined poor fit for you and the employer, the employer and you, and, you know, finding a position where you're happy, as you said, is kind of the way to avoid burnout and and have a hopefully successfully long career. Right. And I think being aware of the limited thoughts that we uh, tell ourselves and listening to people's stories and see like, am I telling myself I can't do that? And is that actually true? And, you know, you found someone who offered you a different path and, you know, you were able to take that because you were open to the possibilities. So I would just encourage everyone to be open to possibilities and look around and saying, maybe there actually is a better way. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's the fit and maybe I can actually be happier if I find this. 
so is there any other last thoughts that you would share with anyone? Um, well, I'm, I'm new uh, into my career, but I know there's a lot of conversation going out about, um, you know, is, is private practice dead? And I can't tell you from experience because I've only been doing it for a couple of months. But if I look to my senior to my senior partner, you know, I can say it looks very viable where I am. Um, I hope people still see the value in it. Um, you know, who knows where medicine will be in 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Um, but I think private moving into private practice certainly saved my career. I think it certainly uh, saved my happiness. And um, so I would say for people who, who think they kind of have to rely on the big employer organizations is you, you don't have to be stuck. Um, I think private practice is viable and, um, you know, make sure happiness is number one. Cause what I, one of the things I learned is when I was so unhappy and stressed out in my previous position, I, I could see it spilling out into, into my house, you know, into the home and to coming home unhappy. So uh, making sure you're, you're happy and you're in a good position will really change your life, not just your job. I completely agree. And the mindset and, you know, of private practice is is one I think that we're going to explore in the next you know episodes because you know I have really gone through a lot of these uh, mindset challenges myself, and you know you really have to be honest with yourself because you can look at one metric and drive yourself crazy, but when you look at the big picture, like when I look at the big picture of private practice, I'm entering in my third year now, and yes, you know the the amount varies over each month, and yes, my overhead has increased as the the business has gotten bigger. But I've I've also created an environment of avoiding isolation because I have a team that works for me really well, and I appreciate them and they appreciate me. And I've created an entire day of the week, which is you know today, which I can do whatever I want. So I, the five days a week, I've actually generated an entire day for myself to do whatever I want and created a team that both helps with notes. And so at the end of clinic, I'm done. And a lot of these things, I've created systems in place that work when I'm not there. And that's actually what you're investing in. And it's really something that you don't know until you do it. And if you don't stop to appreciate some of these things that are are working, that you're not seeing, you know, and your happiness level, you know, your satisfaction level, the level of stress that you have, in some environments, private practice are the way to go. And some, it may be too stressful, but a lot of times it's really checking in with yourself and saying, you know, what is my mindset here? What are my limiting thoughts? What is working for me? What it isn't? And what are the metrics that really matter? And am I actually looking at them? Yeah. And I'd say the one other thing as I reflect on the situation is almost irrespective of what model you're in, whether it's employed or, or private or academic is um, really especially new doctors and new surgeons is to learn uh, the relationship with your partner. Make sure you like your partner. Uh, make sure you guys work well together. You kind of see things the same way. Um, that can be so valuable, especially for a young surgeons. Cause I know when I was having difficult patients or difficult cases, um, you know, not having a partner there or just feeling like you spoke the same language and thought about things the same way can really contribute to stress is not having somebody there who thinks the same way as you and is really supportive. Um, and my new partner, it's just been amazing, not just clinically, uh, you know, we think the same way, we've been trained the same way, we've been trained by some of the same people, but even just socially, like we, you know, we hang out almost every other weekend, our families are our friends now, and it's just such a relief to know that your partner is kind to of your friend, um, or at least, you know, feels that way. Um, it, it, it's so invaluable, especially being a young new doctor or new surgeon, just to know that you have that support there and, and the support that really feels good. 
Yes, I completely agree. And I think the biggest challenge that we have is isolation. And who would have thought that the bigger system we're in, we actually may be more likely to suffer 100%. isolation. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I very much in a huge, in a huge sea, I felt like an isolated fish. And now in my new position, I, I just feel like I'm part of a family and it's been fantastic. I think that's great. I think your story is going to help so many people. So thank you, Dr. Siegel, for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for allowing me to tell my story. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.